Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Mike. Lauren. It's been a really busy year, but did you know that Wired turned 30 this year? I was aware of that. Yes, we had a big birthday party here in San Francisco. Did you go? I did go. I had a a fun conversation with Tim Berners-Lee, the guy who invented the web. In fact, I think we um I think we fixed it. <laughs> you fixed the we web. We fixed you it all at Wired's 30th birthday party. But another panel that I had the opportunity to listen to at our 30th anniversary event was a conversation between our colleague Stephen Levy and Venture capitalist and OpenAI co-founder Reid Hoffman, along with Fei-Fei Li, who is a very well-known Stanford University computer scientist who runs uh, the, the Human-Centered AI Institute there. And this was a really interesting conversation. Have you had the chance to listen to this one yet? Yeah, I was in the audience for it. Uh, it was a very vibrant and fun conversation. Stephen is a very good interviewer. Um, I think one of the things that really jumped out at me was there was one section of the talk that talked about a New York Times article. Is mm-hmm. that right? That's correct. There was a package of stories from the New York Times shortly before our event took place. And one of those stories highlighted all of the very important people in the development of AI and failed to mention any women. So we had Fei-Fei Li on stage, of course, who's renowned in this field, and they addressed this in the conversation that they had with Stephen. They also talked about all of the recent chaos at OpenAI. Um, we should note that also Reid Hoffman left OpenAI's board back in March because he co-founded a competing AI company. It's a little incestuous, this world of AI, right? There, There's a lot of talent moving back and forth between spaces. But they talked about 
the open AI chaos. They also talked about the broader implications of what happens if we reach artificial general intelligence and whether or not they think that's going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, it was fun to have that conversation at the end of a very tumultuous three or four weeks for the AI industry in Silicon Valley. And uh, I think they pretty much covered all of it. They did. And we thought for the final Gadget Lab episode of the year that we'd give our fans and friends the opportunity to listen to this conversation as well. I'm looking forward to reliving it. Yeah, I recommend everyone give this a listen because it lays the groundwork for what I think are going to be some really important topics around AI in 2024. Indeed, it's not going anywhere. (laughs) But we're still here. We're so lucky to have these two people here. Um, Fei-Fei Li is the uh, Sequoia Professor of Computer Science Department. Um, she's renowned for being you know, uh, the inventor of ImageNet, which was you know, just a pivotal uh, moment in the development of contemporary AI. Uh, and then she's got a new book, which is fantastic, called The World's I See. Uh, the World's I See. Reed Hoffman is a legendary entrepreneur and investor. He's the co-founder of LinkedIn, a partner at Greylock. I can kind of take the whole time talking about all the stuff he's done. And he's written a book recently, co-written it, uh, called Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity with AI. And his co-author was GPT-4. <laughs> so thanks so much for being with us. Um, you know, this panel is called the Optimist Club because of, of where you stand. Um, and this is, you know, in contrast to that, all that doomerism. But I want to start with you, Fei-Fei, um, with something that you did in your book. Uh, it's called The World's I See because you talk about uh, seeing the world differently from the experience of creating ImageNet and uh, looking at the world through maybe this alien intelligence was being introduced to us. Um, Tell me about that and what it might mean for all of us. That's a very profound question, Stephen. Thank you. So um, the title of the book is The Worlds and I I See, and I make sure the world is plural, is because as an AI scientist who works in computer vision, I actually do think we're seeing this world in many different layers. First of all, vision is part of intelligence. As an AI scientist uh, working in computer vision, it's very clear to me visual intelligence is a cornerstone of you know, human intelligence and of machine intelligence. Especially this is an interesting context in today's technology where language is leading a lot of the breakthroughs. It is actually important to recognize intelligence is extremely multimodal and uh, uh, for humans and, and will be for machines. And there's a lot of room to grow in terms of the deep perceptual uh, visual, eventually, um, um, you know, action-oriented um, understanding of the world. But it also, um, I, you know, you asked me what I see. As an AI scientist, not only I work in technology, but I also work in, um, de- or am I, I'm dealing with the consequence of the technology we have been building. And it made me to see the human aspect of this technology, the the human centeredness, the human impact, the human responsibility, the human 
agency, and that's a, a different layer that I think I want to underscore both in the book as well as in my um, leadership in communicating AI to the world. You know, maybe we'll talk a little bit uh, about how you're doing that at, at, at Stanford, but uh, you know, the New York Times gave your book a rave, but in recently they had a, an article that said the most important people in AI and considering ImageNet and everything else, I was a little surprised that you weren't on it and no other people of your gender were on it. Reed, did you notice that? Uh, I did, and, and after I stopped being pretty irritated by the uh, incompetence reflected by the article, because uh, you know we're sitting here with one of the people who should have been in the article, mm -hmm. um, I was like, well, this uh, reflects a larger problem that there have been a number Fei-Fei is one of the amazing leading ones, but there have been a number of women who have been key to uh, artificial intelligence, uh, both through its history, but also in the important current wave. Yeah, I wanted to say it's wrong for New York Times to give a list of people who have made modern AI happen, and it has zero women on it. But that, that brings up a, an interesting point. Faith, you mentioned you know, the human aspect of it. Uh, these systems we have are going to be trained and are trained on human content. You know, is it possible to ever purge them of bias, considering that they're learning from us and we're capable, even our greatest institutions, of making the, the, these errors? Reed also should chime in. Um, so first of all, humans' relationship with AI or any tool we have built is a complex one. A tool is designed or intended to help uh, and make our lives and work better, but it also brings a lot of harm and uh, uh, unintended consequences. So I'm gonna admit, I don't know if I can answer your question are we going to completely 100% purge AI from the hu uh, human bias? But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have the responsibility of trying very hard. We are aware of these biases. We are learning how to mitigate these bias. We're learning how to govern um, this tool. So I think it's our responsibility to make it better and better. But we have to start with understanding this is complex, and humans are, are as flawed as, as, you know, anyone, and we need to just take that responsibility and try to do better. I think one of the things that's a progress of human beings is we are trying to figure out how to be our better selves. And so, like, if you go back 100 years, um, I'm pretty sure there wasn't anything that was interesting in disability rights, and therefore would be bias issues. So I think not only is it gonna be a work forever in progress with AI, it's a work forever in progress with human beings. And I think that one of the key things to be clear on is what our benchmarks and target are. Exactly as Fei-Fei said, it's a continuing work in progress that you continue to apply yourself you know, kind of fiercely and intelligently towards. But the benchmark is to be helping us all improve, not to be perfect. Take autonomous vehicles as a, as a parallel of, uh, there's over 40,000 deaths in the US, you know, in 
with you know, car-related accidents, that's not including injuries and everything else. The goal is not to get to zero with autonomous vehicles. If you said the goal was zero and you went through a number of years where you could have saved tens of thousands of lives by deploying some of that, even though there will be some still accidents, you are net massively saving lives and we should see our way forward to that. Um, well, spoken like two optimists. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. So there were, there were two letters that circulated among uh, the AI community and you know, people associated with it. One of them said to uh, put a pause on developing AI or training it. I'm not 100% sure which they, they meant for six months. Um, a lot of people signed that. And then even more people, um, some of them who were really actively involved in developing AI, signed a letter with sort of a general statement saying, you know, we're kind of concerned that this might kill us or whatever. Um, neither of you were among the signers of either letter. Uh, could you explain why? Because I'm sure that someone asked you uh, to put your John Hancock there. Uh, why you didn't? or your Fei Fei Li, but yes. It takes about a minute to sign a letter. It takes five years to build a human-centered AI institute that has been working on AI policy, AI ethics, AI for good, and AI for all. And I think, you know, talking is easy. Really working hard to bring human-centered ethical AI to the world is way harder, and that's how I focus on uh, focus on my energy. Yeah. Uh, I 100% agree with Fei Fei. It's part of the reason uh, I'm, you know, on our advisory board. Yes, and Reed <laughs> was helping us to build this institute. Um, I will say, because it's important to state on the two things. So on the six-month pause letter, it's almost certainly uh, the people think they're being positive and they're actually being destructive. If you do a simple thing of who is gonna to listen to your letter and possibly pause? It's the people who care about human-centered values and everything else, mm -hmm. and so your net impact is between neutral and bad, because mm -hmm. the, the good people are pausing and the other people are not. So, so it's just a foolish endeavor in the first one, and that's leaving aside the people who are signing the letter saying we should pause while I'm maximally accelerating myself. Mm -hmm. uh, we all know who I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then the, 
the, the 22 word statement, I actually thought about some more and it was actually a little bit more strongly worded than you, uh, than you just gestured. It was, should be considered an existential risk along with climate change, pandemic, et cetera. And ultimately the reason I didn't sign that statement, although many people that I uh, love and respect deeply did, so I you know, uh, respect and credit for that, is because it isn't like the other existential risks, because uh, those have no positive consequences. Hmm. Climate change does not have a positive consequence. Pandemic does not have a positive consequence. AI may be the thing that helps us solve the next pandemic. AI may be the thing that helps us you know, mitigate climate change. And so it has the positive column as well. It's not just whatever existential risk you're thinking about. And you have to think about that as well. And this is the problem with the negative focus and the reason why I recommend everyone come join us in the Optimist Club, not mm. because it's you know, a utopian and everything works out just fine and you don't have to navigate, but because it can be part of a, an amazing solution. And that's to what Feifei is saying is what we're trying to build towards. I really want to agree with Reid on this because what Reid is saying is this is a very horizontal technology and that means it has many roles to play. AI can give us a lot of opportunity to discover new materials, new treatments for diseases, climate solutions, new energy, you know, the, the fusion results and all that. In the meantime, we do need to recognize its risk, existential risk in the in the pool of you know list of ai risks is right now the furthest we actually have social risks immediate social risks like disinformation and democracy like job disruption like bias and all that so so if all of our conversation and energy social capital is focusing on first pure negativity without recognizing the opportunities. Second, even, even when we're focusing on the problem, we're not focusing on the immediate important uh, problem to the society. I would be worried about that. This is why, you know, a month ago, I actually had a very um, fun, actually, public uh, discussion with Jeff, uh, Professor Jeff Hinton about this. I mean, I love him to pieces. Um, but he and I had a discussion of how to look at existential risk versus social risks. Well, one member of the Optimist Club, I don't know if you're welcoming him, is a fellow named Mark Andreessen, who published a thing called the Techno um, Optimist Manifesto. Uh, very strident arguments. It quoted Thomas Edison, Richard Feynman, and Carrie Fisher on the subject. Um, uh, let me read you a sentence from his manifesto. Uh, we believe that any deceleration of AI will cost lives. Deaths that were preventable by the AI that was prevented from existing is a form of murder. Um, <laughs> Do you, do you, are you among the first person plural and they say we believe in, in that sentence? Um, well, I think I would say we believe, although the any deacceleration is not quite right. So one of the ways that I describe myself is I'm a techno-optimist and have described myself that way for a decade or more, and not a techno-utopian, uh, which means that just because you can build the technology doesn't mean that it necessarily has a good outcome. You have to shape it. You have to direct what you're doing. And so being an intelligent shaper of it and driving it in the right direction. So for example, 
um, you know, like take you know the vari a variety of AI systems over you know things machine learning systems over the last decade have had bad bias results, like for example, paroling or credit decisions and so forth on racial basis and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so you got no, you have to pay attention to how to do it in the right way. And if that paying attention is a mild deacceleration as you're doing it, that's because you're doing it to get the really kind of outcomes. Now, I'm generally speaking a believer that our future will give us more tools for both the betterment of humanity and navigating the risks. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, I'm not a deaccelerationist at all. I'm more of an accelerationist. But intelligent acceleration, navigating the course, which means that there may be some, like, for example, you get to a corner on the road, <laughs> you do slow down while you're going around the corner. It's rational. <laughs> Um, Steve, I think I should start a new club called the Techno Humanist. <laughs> I'm I'm not a pure optimist nor a doomsay. I think we need to look at this technology with nuance. I believe very much the the possibilities, the opportunities. But I also agree with Reed. We should look at it, look at the messy consequences sometimes, uh, you know, intended or unintended of technology. Look at the human impact from individual dignity all the way to a societal society's social economic structure. So I think uh, it's not it's too simple to say, do you want to accelerate or decelerate? We should talk about where where we want to accelerate, like Reed said, and where we should slow down, and, and that's a nuanced topic. Well, I think one thing that might be different about AI is that we're uncertain about the ceiling, and what that means if you hit whatever that ceiling is. So there's this term called AGI, right, which is artificial general intelligence. Um, I don't think there's universal agreement what that is, um, I do know when I was researching my OpenAI story for Wired, um, I found out that in their contracts, there actually is some kind of clause that says, if we reach AGI, then the terms of this contract are off because we're in a different world now. And when I talked to Satya Nadella, fellow you know pretty well, Reed. Um, you know, he said, yeah, it could be the last invention. You know, he just spun that thing off. You know, I'm curious, what do each of you think AGI is, and what would happen if we got there? You know, I always wonder what would Alan Turing think the <laughs> definition of AGI is, or what would John McCarthy and Marvin Minsky think? The reason I say this is these founding pioneers of our field, I mean, Alan Turing probably wasn't aware he, he, he inspired humanity to, to create AI, but John McCarthy, Marvin Minsky, those people in that Dartmouth uh, summer, they they put on paper an audacious dream of creating machines that think. I don't think they put on paper a dream of narrow AI or task-specific AI. So from that point of view, as a scholar, it's hard for me to fully understand the difference between the science of AI versus this particular term that comes out of industry, frankly, of AGI. To me, the ceiling of AI 
is similar to the ceiling of biology and physics in the sense that we will continue to discover and uncover the new knowledge of intelligence and innovate intelligent machines with the goal of doing benevolence to, to humanity. If we get to a point that that benevolence was diminishing return and we really get to a very dangerous point, I think as a species we need to collectively face that responsibility. And I actually have, this is my optimism, not technology, my optimism mm. is humanity. I believe in our resilience, I believe in our, um, our uh, you know, the, the better part of ourselves. So I don't know where the ceiling is, and I don't know how to, you know, I think AGI is not a term the founding fathers have used. Hmm. The founding fathers, I love it. One of the things that I've quipped about AGI is it actually stands for the AI that we haven't invented yet, hmm. um, which kind of then means that we'll never get to actually AGI, because hmm. if you look at a set of different AI milestones, including like the Turing test that have been done is like, we blow past that. I was like, well, that's not what we meant. We meant this other thing. Um, and um, I do think that, you know, it's a really, I think part of the reason why people have such kind of challenged judgments on these things is um, we don't know what to do if you actually created an AGI that could be a super intelligence, or we don't know what an exponential curve is. One of the things I find most enter most interesting is, is people say, people are really bad at predicting the results of exponential curves, and so therefore my prediction is, <laughs> and, and it's like, yes, I agree with your first statement, and that's the reason why your second statement you should be a little bit more cautious about in your, in your assertion. Mm -hmm. uh, and that doesn't mean go blindly, but it does mean the kind of navigation. I mean, like Moore's Law had an exponential curve for a long time. Um, I do think we're still an exponential increase in commute, compute and what we're doing in AI. Do you think, uh, it, uh, while people will frequently say, well, that compute curve will then go to an IQ curve, that's when you begin doing speculation. Mm -hmm. It's not at all clear that the increase in compute is a direct correlation to an increase mm -hmm. in IQ, increase in certain kinds of capabilities and so forth. And I think that you know, our next larger scale models are going to have new amazing, amazing things for us. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna be you know, um, like in the valley here, you know, the number of times you hear quotes like, well, I for one, I'm in support of our future robot overlords. And you're like, what the <laughs> heck are you talking about? <laughs> but anyway, so the, I, I think that, that the right thing is to say we're bad at predicting exponentials and we should, we should keep our attention focused on it. But we've been part of a number of exponential curves that, that, that we have navigated just fine. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.
Okay, well, I want to switch to something a little more uh, prosaic. Uh, you know, uh, we've had a big shock lately about what's been happening at OpenAI. It's a company that you were original funder, uh, Reed, and you were on the board until relatively recently. I'm curious, were you surprised at this board that you once sat on and fired Sam Altman? Uh, surprise would be an understatement. Um, uh, it was definitely like reading the blog post was like, what's going on? Um, I still don't think we fully know, um, you know, as, as uh, the world, because I haven't been on the board since March and I've not had any conversation with any of the board members. I have talked to Sam. I do think that we are in a much better place for the world and for the mission to have Sam as a CEO. I think he's very competent at that. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever seen in, in all of corporation history where a board fires a CEO and something like rounds to 100% of the employees sign a letter saying, you all resign and reinstate the CEO or we're out of here, mm -hmm. um, which like, I think that's history making. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I was surprised. <laughs> well. I mean, do you feel, you know, you're at Microsoft now, could Microsoft really have taken on that whole company and absorbed that? I, I think, I'm just wondering whether Satya Nadella just had a sigh of relief that he wound up with Sam back in charge of OpenAI and, you know, he gets all the, you know, the fruits of their labors without having to take on that whole company. Well, it was a very genuine, I believe, offer um, for both kind of uh, the world and for Microsoft's business purposes because I think the, the arrangement that OpenAI and Microsoft has made is going to be another thing that is going to be, I think, taught in business schools and everything else as one of the epic partnerships in you know, technolo technology history. Mm. And I think that Satya was, like I think our, the outcome where there's an independent organization, where Sam is the CEO, which continues doing the good work, which has borne so much fruit in this partnership, is exactly like the, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. Like, let's mm -hmm. keep going with, with, with what it is. But I also, um, you know, Satya is a very high integrity, uh, genuine leader, and I think he would have um, hired everybody from OpenAI and kept going mm -hmm. if that was the only path that was left open to him. So we, we made, you know, in the press, we, we went, you know, we went, we went bonkers on it, and you know, and, uh, and it was like the biggest deal in our, our world. But you know, are there big lessons to be drawn from that? Um, you know, whether it's between you know, profit or you know, benefit, you know, uh, and safety or, or whatever. Faye, did you take any lesson from that, or just do you find that just sort of you know an interesting sideshow? Well, first of all, I have tremendous respect to all the technologists from Greg to Ilya, Sam, and many of my former students and all that in OpenAI. So I have a sigh of relief when this whole thing has normalized. I, if there is any story in this particular story, I would say is that it's a human story. Mm. Even in the world of AI, in the world of you know, making AI technology, what unfolded is more a human story. One final question before we go. Fei-Fei, um, uh, would you sit on the board? 
Um, I will carefully consider that. Yes. Okay. Well, on that note, I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> Thank you. So, should I offer to the open AI that you're going to be doing board recruiting for them? <laughs> Thanks so much. These Thank guys are you. great. All right, that's our special episode of Gadget Lab for this week, and it's our final show of the year. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Mike Kalori, and to our producer, Boone Ashworth. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on social media. Just check the show notes. Have a happy holiday season, and we'll be back with more Gadget Lab goodness next year. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.